The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and continuing through the end of the chapter. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. I want to say welcome uh, to all of you. If you're new to Park Church, so glad that you're here as well. Uh, we gather every Sunday to worship Jesus. I really believe he is the Son of God who died on the cross to show us the love of God to atone for our own rebellion, but also to show us what it really means to be human, uh, to show us what it means to be the, the kind of people that are created in God's image to represent the character of God in this world. And so as a community, uh, we gather to worship Jesus who died on the cross and rose again on the third day, but also to learn together what it means to follow his way of life, what it means to, through his spirit, become like him and represent his character and the way we live, the way we work, the way we relate in this world. Uh, we make a ton of mistakes along the way, and so we're so grateful uh, for his grace towards us. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about what it would look like to 
to get involved in the community besides just worshiping with us on a Sunday. We'd love to get to know you. And so right after the service, we have a little meeting that's designed for you. It takes about 10 minutes. It's over in the back corner of the gallery over there. There's a sign that says new here. One of our staff members will be there to get to know you a bit, answer any questions you might have, and share with you a little bit about uh, what we're about and how you could get more involved in our church community. And so hopefully that would uh, be of service to you in some way if you're trying to get more involved. Um, again, like Joel mentioned when we were taking time to lament earlier, a lot of grief and a lot of loss in our community uh, in the recent weeks. And just want to create space uh, as a church, whether those losses and griefs are close to you or not, or the things you walk through in your own life, creating space to slow down and, and kind of mine and say, where do I feel loss? Where do I feel grief? Where do I feel the pain? Where do I feel the brokenness in this world? And giving your, your soul room to feel that and to bring that before God uh, is a really healthy and healing thing. And it's something that the people of God have done for centuries, for millennia, and we're just trying to create some space for us to slow down as a community. And so that's next Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. Uh, it'll be kind of very kind of low structure, but times for some corporate prayers, silence, reflection, just to bring our sorrows and our griefs before the Lord and trust that he can meet us even in those spaces. And so we'd invite you uh, to that if that would be helpful for you in any way. Or if you've never taken time to lament and grieve, it might be a little bit uncomfortable, but maybe a really healthy step just to be in a space where there's, where there's room and silence uh, to reflect on those things and see how the Lord meets you in it. Uh, we are in week four of a 12-week series through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is doing some of that same thing. It's actually, uh, as a book, it exists in the kind of biblical canon uh, in part to bring our attention to and to slow down and linger on the kind of broken things that we experience in this life. The way that the author of Ecclesiastes will put it, or this preacher, uh, is this life under the sun. As we're navigating through this life, you are confronted with brokenness, pain, perplexities, complexities, emptiness, dissatisfaction, disillusionment, and then ultimately death. There is certainly more to life than those things, but so much of our culture spends attention focusing on the glittery things, the exciting things, the things that make us want to laugh or play or rejoice. The book of Ecclesiastes is an incredible gift to help us slow down and pay attention to a more kind of fully orbed picture of reality. Um, and this morning, uh, we're going to slow down and think about this idea of our relentless pursuit of more, more. We want more. As human beings, we are prone to want more. And so what we're going to do today is pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to kind of expose this as a lie, a lie that won't actually lead to your happiness, will actually lead to a lot of pain for other people and for yourself. But not just that it would be exposed, but that Jesus himself through his spirit would set us free. Uh, my prayer kind of has been bubbling up in my heart all week is, is not just to see this lie. I feel like I can see it. You can read about it. You know, there are counseling journals, psychology journals, sociologists who have researched the effects of cultures of grasping and grasping on people. We can talk about it. You can even be convinced of it in your brain. But unless the Holy Spirit brings freedom from this lie and helps us to see the freedom that Jesus through his love, his work, his resurrection offers to us, we'll be trapped in it. And so my prayer today and what I'm gonna pray in a moment is for Jesus to liberate us, to save us from a lie that leads us towards greater experience of brokenness and pain and further away from his redeeming love. And so would you join me as we pray that God would do uh, magnificent and powerful things among us this morning. Now, Jesus, we, we do pray for this. We pray that you would work wonders. 
the, the things we see exposed in this chapter in Ecclesiastes are things that for many of us are not unfamiliar. Many of us have thought about these things. We've felt them in our own heart. But, but it feels like we are culturally addicted to this, to this relentless pursuit of more. And so I'm praying, Jesus, that you would expose this lie for what it is, that you'd help us to see the impact of it on our own souls and on the lives of others, but also that you'd set us free from it, that you'd like break us out of the haze, that the illusion that motivates us and propels so much of our activity would be snapped, that we'd find your love, your generosity, your power, your sufficiency as something we could rest in and trust in, that we'd see your resurrection as something that we could anticipate, where all these unfulfilled longings that we're trying to kind of find ways to fill up in our own strength, that we could fuel in our own hearts a longing for your resurrection when you come and make all things new, when you bring heaven and earth together finally. And so I pray that you would do incredible work among us. I feel aware that these works, even in my own heart, just take time and time and time. So I pray that today would just be another deposit of liberation and freedom. And you'd help us to take another step of following the way of Jesus and resting in his love. And so we need you for this King Jesus desperately. And pray you'd work among us through your spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, My wife has been out of town this weekend at the women's retreat, uh, like many women in our community. And so I'm solo parenting, uh, which is a a lot of fun. And every time I have the chance to solo parent, I always find ways to give my kids things that we never give our kids together so that they'll just kind of like little dad points, right? And so like donuts on Saturday we do often, but this time we got the bigger donuts, jelly filled, whatever you want. Because like when it's just dad, it gets better is what I want them to feel because that's that's the opposite of reality. Reality. So anything I can do to compensate is worth it. The other thing we did is, is Oreos. I got two packages of double stuffed Oreos, two of them. Uh, one for the four kids and then one for me. Just two packages <laughs> of double stuffed Oreos, which we don't normally do. But so just throughout the week, you know, I'm just like sliding the kids Oreos. Just like remember how cool dad is, you know, uh, and just like except for my two-year-old. My two-year-old, uh, I don't want to slide her Oreos because I want her to take naps and I want her to go to sleep on time. So I'll give her like an Oreo in the day. But that means all the other times we give our daughter Ore- or the other kids Oreos, they have to do it not in front of my daughter's eyes. And so we have the, like, we spell things out. We're like, you guys want to get an O-R-E-O? And then she starts, my, my two-year-old's like A, B, C, D, E, F. She hears letters and just starts saying letters, the alphabet. But we kind of say, go to the back room or go outside or go downstairs and eat your Oreo. Because if she sees them eating that Oreo, she will want that Oreo without question. If she sees it, she's going to want it. She's not sitting there crying, I want an Oreo, I want an Oreo, until she sees them with an Oreo. As soon as she sees them with an Oreo, now it's desperation. She'll throw a fit if she doesn't get it. And I know you don't have to give your kids everything they're throwing a fit for, I know, but it makes life more complicated when they're throwing a fit for the thing. So it's easier to go kind of enjoy that Oreo in a different place because once she sees it, she'll want it. That's a human experience. We're all familiar with that. You see it in little kids all the time. They're playing contentedly with their toy. You bring in another kid with a different toy. Even if it's a worse toy, the fact that some other kid looks to be happy with some other toy, it propels them to want that thing, right? Uh, This is a fundamental uh, kind of experience, not just for little kids, but for all human beings. 
for all human beings. There's a philosopher that's named Rene Girard, a French philosopher from the 20th century, that described this as mimetic desire. When you want something, our desires as human beings aren't things that we mostly contrive of on our own, autonomously or independently. We are forming our desires as we watch other people desire things and get things. So we imitate, mimetic, the desires of others. It's how we're formed. And basically, it kind of works like this. You look at somebody else having a thing, and you imagine that that's fulfilling them. And so you imagine that whatever lack of fulfillment you experience could somehow be assuaged or kind of fulfilled if you had what they had. Okay, and so this experience is all around us. It's the foundation of our modern advertising movement, marketing campaigns, propaganda, the whole bit, is that what we want to do if we want to get you to want something is we show somebody else having that thing and looking happy. And so these ads are all around you. That's why you can get people obsessed with buying the next pair of Jordans every year, every year, every year. It's why we can get people wanting the next iPhone year after year after year. In fact, these things are like sewn into our whole kind of marketing system. There's a guy named Edward Bernays, who's the nephew of Sigmund Freud, who is the father of the modern advertising movement in the 1920s, basically kind of coming out of the propaganda movements of the, of the Great War in 1914 and the, and the kind of those those years around that, they were starting to think we could probably use these same kind of tactics we use to shape people's opinions about the war to shape people's opinions about their own purchasing habits and their own approach to life. And so they began using these ideas that they had developed by controlling the masses to kind of create a new approach to economics and consumer behavior. And so they moved culture from a kind of needs-based culture to a wants culture by by this movement of advertising. And so you, when, when um, the, the Ford company came out with a Model T, uh, the, the leaders were known of saying, like, you can have a Ford in any color you want as long as it's black. Um, that's, you know, whatever color you want as long as it's black. But in the 1920s, they started introducing different colors each year so that now it's not just, I have a Ford car that was designed to last forever. Now it's my neighbor has the new model, the red model. My neighbor has the green model. My neighbor has this next year's model. And by seeing somebody else have the next model, it taps into this desire, not just for what I need, but now I want something as a status symbol, as a, as a way to elevate myself or as a way to fulfill these longings. And so this began to kind of permeate everything. And like I said, it's even made its way into kind of the year-by-year -year introduction of new iPhones. If you saw the iPhone 15, listen to what it says about the iPhone 15. This is wild to me. The iPhone 15 Pro is the first iPhone to feature an aerospace-grade titanium design using the same alloy that spacecraft used for missions to Mars. That's from the Apple, Apple website. There's like, if you, if you want to like tap into this longing to get to Mars, you know, uh, get the Apple iPhone 15 titanium. Um, and so here's what Apple 20, we found this release. Apple iPhone 20 is like this. Here's what's interesting. Those are not cameras. Those are rocket engines. Uh, those are all rocket engines. It's going to be on Iron Man style. It's ready. It's already got titanium. It'll take you to Mars, hold them like this, and you're going to be, it's going to be amazing. So we're familiar with this, right? We're, we're so familiar with these ideas. Our whole society is permeated with them. You know, what insurance are you going to get? Are you going to trust Peyton Manning or Patrick Mahomes? And that's going to determine nationwide or State Farm. It just depends. 
But these guys seem to be happy and they're, they're moving on. And so all these ads put it before you and we start doing it. We start chasing the new car. We start chasing the upgrade. We start chasing the new style of clothes every year, every year. What's the latest fashion trends for 2023? What's the latest fashion trends for next year? We look at the furniture. We want new furniture, not old furniture. Even if your furniture works great, you don't want your house to feel outdated because then when you have pictures of it, you're going to look like you're out of touch and you see your friends and they have the updated furniture. And so if you got the upgraded furniture, you'd be as happy as they look on those pictures that they posted of themselves being happy, right? And so we're kind of fueled by these things, and it's moving us into this this pursuit of more and more and more, more and more and more, a culture of grasping. And this culture of grasping is fundamental to the human experience all the way back to the very beginning. In the Garden of Eden, There's a story of God creating this world with incredible abundance. And he says, I've created this whole space. He plants human beings in the middle of this garden scene, and there's so much abundance, so much beauty, so much goodness. And there's one tree in the middle of the garden that's called the knowledge of good and evil. And it's not just like a tasty tree just to kind of tempt them and like mess with their minds. It represents this opportunity for humans to say, am I going to trust God knows what's good and what's evil? Or am I going to take that on my own? And am I going to say, I imagine that God isn't full of abundance and giving me all these incredible gifts to enjoy. I imagine in order to experience joy, I have to start grasping on my own terms. And so the woman, Eve, in the garden, she sees the tree and she hears this lie of an enemy that says, basically, God's holding you back. He knows that if you eat it, you'll be like him. Like if you you grasp for this fruit, you will go up the ladder to be like God. If you want to be like God, if you want to to elevate yourself, you have to grasp for it on your own terms. And so she looks at it. She hears the lie, and her own heart sees that this is a delight to the eyes, and it seems to promise to make one wise. And she takes the fruit, and she eats it. And she gives it to her husband, who's right there with her, and he takes the fruit, and he eats it. And they've, they've decided that instead of trusting in God's abundance and goodness and trusting him for flourishing life, we're going to start grasping for it on our own terms. And human beings have been doing that ever since. We're, we're grasping. We're grasping for more. We're grasping for better because we believe it will truly make us happy. And that's the great lie. That more and better does not equal happier. More and better does not equal happier. Let's say that together. More and better does not equal happier. The reason why that's so important is because I think most of us believe that more and better will make me happier. Most of us believe that. It's an incredible lie, but it's fueling our lives, and it, and it doesn't. It doesn't. This is a lie that actually lays a foundation as the root of so much pain in our own lives and in pain in our world today. And my prayer is that the preacher of Ecclesiastes would expose that lie and that Jesus would set us free. I want us to see the way that that lie is exposed in Ecclesiastes, starting chapter 4, verse 1. It's a very dark beginning to this chapter. It's a heavy chapter all the way through, but the very beginning, he goes to dark places rather quickly. Look at what he says, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, and I, again, I saw, so again, he's, he's looking at life in this world. And I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, but for them, there was no one 
to comfort them. First thing I want us to see is that grasping for more hurts others. It hurts people. It hurts people. Uh, One commentator said this, talking about power, financial power or other kinds of power. He said this, power, economic or otherwise, is not to be abused. People, whether less powerful than we or not, are not to be treated as objects out of which profit can be squeezed. But as human beings made by the same God who created us all, this includes our employees. Human beings, as we find them under the sun, are, however, in rebellion against God and thus generally careless of the neighbor. As Kohelet, that's the the preacher of Ecclesiastes, sees all too clearly. They're out for gain, and in their desperate attempts to climb the ladder of success, they will happily kick and trample on the heads of those beneath them. This is simply the way the world is. We should not be surprised by it. The world, therefore, is a miserable place for many people who live without anyone to comfort them with a real prospect of change in their circumstances. What what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is not that power or resources is inherently bad. Uh, Culturally, people would have you believe that, that to have resources or power of any kind is almost inherently bad. And that's not true. God created human beings with incredible power. He created us to be images of his authority, his reign, his dominion here on earth, like kings and queens he created us to be that represent his ruling authority on on this world. But he created us to be people that represent it with his character, which is with sacrificial generosity, with self-giving love. To take all that God has given to you, your mind, your resources, your opportunities, your agency, your upbringing, your experience, all of that power that he's given you, and to offer it as a gift in sacrifice for the betterment of other people. That's what he created us to be. The people, the people, to be people who say, here's who God's made me to be. How could I represent him in the way I give of myself for the better of other people? That's what you're supposed to do with power. That's what Jesus did with his power. He took his equality with God. Instead of using it to lift himself up, he made himself nothing, emptied himself, and gave of himself for the, for the good of others. But as human beings who have pushed against the reign of God, who are now not secure in his love, finding joy and identity in his love, but now insecure, looking for anybody to validate us or to, or to esteem us or to lift us up, and we, we, we start using our own power to lift ourselves up above other people. And once you start doing that, you create in this world this sort of like competition where the way up for me is to get above others. It's to get more than others. To get more influence, more power, more appreciation, more worth, more resources, more anything. If, if I want to become someone that's worth, worthy of love or appreciation or affirmation or adoration or just feel good about who I am, my basic sense of esteem, I need to climb above others. And when we do that as individuals, we ignore the needs of others around us. When we do that as individuals, we treat other people as an object of our competition. We treat other people as an object over which we have to climb and continue to grow. And we create a whole culture of doing that such that whole people groups get marginalized, hurt, abandoned, forgotten, kicked to the edges. And then we start kind of banding up and people like more like us and we create this tribalism where we can kind of like scapegoat other people or other places or other experiences of life just to feel better about ourselves. And we create this world where to, to go up inherently means to kick others down or, di- or to disregard the needs of others. 
And this dominates our society and it always has. It always has from the very beginning. This is not a new thing. It's not an American thing. It's a human thing. As human beings, we take the resources that God has given us and wherever we can with whatever agency we have, we find ways to lift ourselves up against others. And it leads to incredible, incredible pain in this world. The author of Ecclesiastes or the preacher isn't even trying to identify a solution. He's just naming a perennial reality. As he observes life in this world, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. It doesn't mean that there's not a solution, but what he's doing right now is showing that in this kind of a world, people lift themselves up and accrue and accumulate more and more power. And often people in people groups are marginalized and kicked to the edges and forgotten. And those people that are marginalized, kicked to the edges and forgotten, he says, have no one to comfort them. And it doesn't mean no one to like console them, but the word is more like advocate for them. No one to do something about the problem. And so many people feel stuck in that situation where they're suffering and feeling oppressed or kicked to the edges and don't know what to do. And there's a misery there. There's a misery there. There's a whole, there's a whole musical about this called The Miserable Ones. Les Mis, right? It's a, it's a whole experience of oppression, class-oriented oppression, economic oppression, but these stories have made their way into our society and our experience over and over and over again. Over and over and over again. And so what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing is reflecting on that reality, on the pain of that reality. And as he reflects on it, he says, you know what? When you look at the experience of people that are being oppressed, when there's nobody that's able to like efficiently or effectively help them, it almost feels like it'd be better if they died. Like to finish life and be done and he's not saying that like, somebody should cause them to die, but he's saying like, once they're done and you're out of the misery, that almost feels better. And as he thinks about that, he's like, you know what would almost be better than that? If you never existed at all. Because for him, as he reflects on life under the sun, there's a misery. Now, a lot of us do not feel that kind of misery in life under the sun. A lot of us don't feel that misery. It's important that we be a kind of people that pay attention to the misery that does exist in our world, though. Because while we experience, many of us, a, a kind of like comfort and a level of comfort and a kind of lifestyle that feels like not altogether miserable, there are people in this world right now that feel trapped in utter and inescapable misery. All around the world, there are people suffering incredible tragedies, lost, there are war-torn countries, countries that are trapped in incredible poverty and pain, struggling with hunger crises, water crises, again, uh, corruption in their own government, and it feels like nobody cares, nobody's paying attention, and there's nothing they can do about it. That's a reality of life under the sun, and we need to pay attention to that reality. What, what do we do with it? Do we just like the the preacher of Ecclesiastes just note it and move on. The, the fuller biblical story is going to call us to actually move into that. And it's what Jesus has modeled for us. In fact, in the way it talks about Jesus, it says this, and I think it's an incredible, an incredible statement. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's, it's kind of picturing what Christ did as a movement towards us in that pain, in the misery of life under the sun. He emptied himself and came into this to meet us in that space with his self-giving, sacrificial generosity. And that's who he's called us to be in this world. It's people that pay attention to his way, that we want to be a kind of people 
that follow the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is to practice sacrificial generosity. The way of Jesus is to practice sacrificial generosity. To pay attention to needs around us, to look for people around you that feel vulnerable, that are experiencing need and brokenness. It might be in your immediate sphere. It might be people in your small group or in your neighborhood or at the school you go to. But to pay attention and to actually approach people with this heart, what has God given me? Not to be the savior of anybody, but to be a reflection of his sacrificial generosity. And the more Christians become the kind of people that follow that approach that Jesus modeled for us, the more we get to meet people in those spaces and show a kind of love and bring a kind of equity and justice and restoration into this world that God has designed us for. There were supposed to be a people who practice sacrificial generosity. The world is full of pain and misery. We need to pay attention to it. It's an experience of life under the sun, one that Jesus meets us in and offers us a way forward. But this grasping for more isn't just causing pain for others. It's not just hurting others. Look at what happens in verse 4. It says this. Well, then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Second thing I want us to see is that grasping for more leads to anxiety and emptiness. It's not just the culture of grasping for more creates a competitive culture. It actually leads in your own heart to anxiety and emptiness. What the preacher of Ecclesiastes says is all of it is coming from envy, right? Like that Rene Girard idea of mimetic desire. It comes from seeing somebody else with something, thinking if I just had that thing, then I would be happy like them. And so we see people with something and it moves us and propels us into this grasping for more, grasping for better movement. And what the preacher says here in the passage is that it leads to a vanity, an emptiness. It's like grasping or striving after the wind. And he says all of our kind of like toil, this kind of relentless, busy pursuit of more and more, and all of our, he says, skill, or the idea is like our, our drive for achievement, our drive for success comes from envy. And I would say this dominates the American culture. This is seen as a value of our American culture, which is this relentless pursuit to achieve more, to achieve, to succeed, to accumulate. And what the Bible is saying is what it leads to is emptiness. What it leads to is just chasing and chasing and chasing. It's a relentless, endless pursuit that leads to more and more pain, even in your own heart. Listen to this again from a commentator named Ian Proven. He says this, it's a suspicion or the realization that others are gaining more from life than we are that leads us on to compete with them in the insane rat race striving to outdo them. It's a suspicion that they seem to be getting more out of life. They're getting better vacations. They're getting a better house. They're getting kind of more, better relationships. They're, they're, they have better finances. They have better kind of toys to play with. They have better experiences. They have better neighborhood. They have, and it's just sense that they're getting more out of it that makes me think and fuels this rat race like I need to catch up lest I be outdone and not get all that I could out of life. And we feed this culture, right? We feed this culture. I'm going to say something. I'm, I'm going to say it with, with kind of gentleness. I mean it more harshly than I'm about to say it. Um, <laughs> I think I, that's actually from my heart. I wish it wasn't, but I, I feel this deeply. When we tell our kids, you can do anything. You can be anything. We're lying to them. 
and we're tapping into that culture, setting up for them incredible expectations of what they ought to be able to do and achieve. And their sense is, I ought to be able to do anything and achieve anything. And so, as I live my life chasing to be or to do anything, I always feel not yet there. Not yet there. I should be more. I should achieve more. I should accomplish more. After all, I can do anything and be anything. Now, I get that it's a desire to inspire and empower, and that's where there's the gentleness there. I I get that. That's not inherently wrong or bad. But the lie is that you need to to fully maximize some, like, self-perceived potential that you have. And the the insidious thing about that lie is that potential is always just another step forward from where you are. It's, It's another step forward. And that kind of, that destination keeps moving. It's a relative destination. And so there's a guy named Elaine de, de Baton who wrote a book called Status Anxiety. And he talks about our kind of relentless pursuit of kind of in a, in a kind of culture of meritocracy, which is like what I am is a result of what I've done. And we have this sense of what I ought to be. And he calls it your pretensions, your imagined potential, your pretensions. Okay? And what he says is your actualizations, who you are, over and against your pretensions, who you think you are going to be, is like essentially your self-worth. So you can think about this. Your sense of self-worth equals your actualizations over your pretensions. So we say in more plain terms, like how valuable you think you are is the relationship between who you actually are and who you think you ought to be. And so we live this life thinking, I always ought to be a little better. And where do we get that from? Where do we get that from? Well, you get it from some referent group, Right? Uh, so the referent group might be like the people that you grew up with. I grew up with these people, and so I kind of measure myself against them. I stay up to date with them on Instagram or social media or whatever people use these days. I stay up to date. I see their kind of portrayal of their best life in these places, and I feel like I need to keep up with them. I need to keep up with the proverb, for proverbial Joneses, right? And so we feel that in our own life, with our career, what city we live in, our, again, our, our home, our style, our clothing, our income, our vacations, our experiences. We think, if other people are doing that, I ought to be able to do that too. Now, again, here's the insidious thing. As soon as you kind of like level up on your peer group, your peer group changes. Now you're in a different place where you're looking at a new peer group and this new echelon of achievement. And so you do it again. And then you do it again. And you do it again. And you can look at anything. I was reading in Forbes magazine this, uh, this morning about the depression and the anxiety a severe depression, like off the charts, almost double the national average of depression and anxiety for some of the wealthiest and the kind of highest echelons of most successful people in this world. And you can read about stories of this, of people when they get to the top and they feel like it's pretty clear that I've achieved more than 99.99% of human beings and I still feel empty and depressed. It's pretty clear that this whole game didn't work. But we hear that stuff and we're like, yeah, but I would probably be different. It would work for me. And that's the lie. And we can laugh about it. I think it's funny. It's like, it's kind of ridiculous. But we, we buy it. We buy it. And so we strive and we strive and we strive. And what Ecclesiastes is saying, this preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying it leads to, it's vanity. It's like chasing the wind. It doesn't ever satisfy. It can't. It won't. Listen, this is from Melissa Kruger's book, The Envy of Eve. She said, our coveting exposes that we have set our hearts upon earthly gain. The more we seek our treasure outside of Christ, the more we falsely believe that God is lacking in his goodness to us. 
Essentially, our coveting accuses God of a failure to reign well over the events of our lives. We always think, like, I should be able to do more. God should be giving me more. I should have more opportunity. And it fuels, again, this rat race of more and more and more. And look at what the author of Ecclesiastes says. In response to that, he gives kind of two pitfalls. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So you kind of like say, okay, well, if striving for more and more and more, you know, leads to emptiness, then I'm, not, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to kind of be passive in life and not contribute. And the idea of folding your hands is just not, not contributing, not doing anything. He's saying that, that's a foolishness. It's going to actually lead to a deterioration of who you are, right? It might actually lead to a real deterioration. Like if you take that to like its logical end where I'm not going to work, eventually like the resources I have are going to be used up if I'm not contributing and supplying my needs and doing the things God's put before me. I'm going to eat up and then eventually I'm going to kind of suffer and waste away. But it also is a psychological experience that when you're not giving yourself to something of purpose and meaning and value, it's a, it's a subhuman way to live. It's a subhuman way to live. We are called to contribute. We're called to contribute. It's when we think that our contribution and what we contribute or the degree of our contribution establishes our sense of worth and value, that that's the lie. And so here's what he says about that in the next verse. So better is a handful of quietness. The word here is like tranquility, calmness, contentment. A handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and a striving after the wind. It's an incredible image. It says if you just fold your hands and do nothing, it's going to waste, you're going to waste away. But if you're grasping like with two hands for more and better and more, the stress and the toil and the anxiety of this more and better and more and better life will eat at your soul and you'll never find contentment or peace. That, that game will never end. And, and it will finally end, quote unquote, when you finally realize that you gave your whole life to something that will never work. And so he offers a different approach which is essentially a handful of contentment and a handful of contribution. Like, what has God given you to contribute? And how do you find contentment in this world? There's real work to be done. There's life to be lived. There are gifts God's given you to contribute to the needs of the world. That's beautiful. What an incredible gift. So the way of Jesus is to balance contribution and contentment. To balance contribution and contentment. To, to live a life where we wake up and we do what God's put before us for the good of others, but we don't think that I have to like do more and more and I need to work enough to get that better house and I need to work enough to provide for that extra vacation. I need to work enough to do all those cool things that my friends seem to be doing with their family that we can't afford to do. And so I want to give my kids the moon. I want to offer them everything. And so if I can just like do all these things and offer all my kids, then we'll be happy like all those other families are probably happy. Probably happy. Are they? Their pictures look like they're happy. And they might experience happiness in some way, but is it true ultimate fulfillment? I've watched people in Marungatuni, Uganda, a year ago, that are struggling with a lack of water, a lack of food, a lack of really significant forms of shelter, whole families sleeping in little huts that have a kind of joy and gratitude and a freedom in their approach to life that I have almost never seen here a simplicity, a community, a richness, a thickness of culture. And my point isn't to say you need to go do that, but just to say there, there is a kind of path to joy and contentment that isn't forged by more accumulation and more experiences. 
There's a, there's a path of, to contentment that is to be able to rejoice in the gifts that God has given, but also to embrace the fact that true joy and satisfaction isn't going to come through accumulation. And actually recognizing that sets you free to actually experience contentment in a really beautiful way. So the way of Jesus is to balance contribution and contentment. And the third thing that we see in this passage, and I think it's, it's profound again, verse seven says this. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, this smoke, this fog. Here's what it was. It's one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all this toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure or goodness? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Third thing we see is that grasping for more leads to loneliness. This culture of grasping is, is fostered and fed by our hyper-individualism. That the main thing I need to be concerned about in this world is my advancement. My individual advancement. And so people can chase and strive and can achieve incredible things. But when their primary goal, or if your primary goal is your own advancement, and you look around and there's no real meaningful community, no meaningful relationships, no meaningful connection, great, look at all you achieved. And what this, you know, imaginary man, this hypothetical man has done is he's strived and stressed himself out to accumulate and climb some ladder. And as he's made his way up the proverbial ladder, he's at the top of the ladder. He's exhausted. He's stressed out. He's worked so hard. He's been driven. He's pushed. He overcame all the obstacles. He overcame the challenges. And he looks around and there's nobody there to enjoy it with him. He's all alone. He's all alone. And I feel this in the busyness of our culture. The amount of people in our community here that say, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And I I get it. I'm not saying you shouldn't say you're busy. My point is, there's a degree of busyness here that is unhealthy. I say this pastorally with love. You don't have to be that busy. That's a choice. I'm saying this strongly because I don't think anybody says it strongly enough. Busyness is a choice. You don't have to do that. Now, if you choose not to be as busy, it might mean things for your life. It might mean there are things that you, that you think you want to do or that you actually want to do or that your friends are doing that you're not going to be able to do. There are probably activities, engagements that you could be involved in that you're not going to be able to do. There are probably things and vacations you could go on that you're not going to be able to do because you're, you're saying no. There might be promotions you could have got that you're not going to get because you said, I'm limiting how much I'm doing in this workplace because I value other things besides the, the things I produce at my work. You don't have to do that. It's a lie, and our whole culture is swimming in it. And so we just kind of keep doing it as if that's what we need to do. Your kids don't have to do 12 activities in one semester. They don't have to. Well, their friends are. Okay, are their friends' families happy? I don't know. We're just running around. Okay, that's a cho- my point is just that it's a choice. I'm not even trying to get judgmental about it. I'm just naming it as a choice. It's a choice that's fueled by a lie that's gripped us. It's not an easy choice because it means actually saying, I think that's a lie and I'm willing to do some pretty radical things to step away from that culture and that lie to start saying, I'd rather have a handful of tranquility and a handful of contribution and real meaningful relationships that actually take time. It takes time and availability and margin. Relationships with your neighbors will take margin. Relationships in the church is going to take some margin. Meaningful relationships in your family will mean time together, not just transporting people to places. It's going to be time together. 
but you've got to push away from the lie. And I think it's a really, really insidious and destructive lie. And again, I say this with pastoral love for, for our community. I think it's a lie that's gripping us more than we might think that it is. More than we might think that it is. Or maybe say, I know that it is, but I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, here's, and again, the way of Jesus here, the way of Jesus is to prioritize relationships over productivity. That's what he did. There are times where people would come up to Jesus and his disciples would be like, don't bother him. Don't you know that all that Jesus has to do? And Jesus would be like, stop, come to me. And he'd take little kids and he'd sit down with kids that are coming to him. He'd, he'd take people that are on the margins of sight and he'd create space for them. And all of his disciples had the sense of, you should be doing all these things. And he's like, this is what I came to do. It's to love people to love people with who I am, with who God's given me to be, to welcome people, to say to people, come to me. Are you burdened and beat down by a culture that's chewing people up? Come to me. I've got time for you. I've got space for you. I'll relieve you of a burden and I'll offer you a way to live that's more free, more light. I'll show you a different way. And he does. He's not just offering us the opportunity to come to him. He's giving us a model of a way to live, to prioritize relationships over our productivity. Again, it doesn't mean hang out with people all day and don't do your job. Like, contribute. But, but value people. Value the people around you. That's what he says right here in the passage. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Like, if you're in community and meaningful relationships and you've worked hard, you have people that can enjoy that with you. For if they fall, like if, if someone falls who has community, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And although a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Jesus is saying when you value relationships and prioritize relationships, then you have someone to support you and pick you up when you fall. You have someone to keep you warm in the midst of those dark, cold nights of your own life. It's not just talking about in bed and marriage. Friendship, companionship, community in the painful and scary moments. There are people with you, walking with you through it. And you have someone who has your back. You have people that are there fighting for you and with you against the lies and against the culture and against the pain and the experiences. People are saying, we love you. We're for you. We're right here with you. We've got your back. He's saying that this is better. This is more good than a culture of grasping. A culture of grasping for more and more and more. It's to prioritize the relationships. And at the end of the day, he tells a story of a, of a poor man who's wise and young and of a rich man who's wealthy but foolish, a king. And he basically says that the poor, wise youth has it off better than this wealthy, foolish, old king. Because that wealthy, foolish, old king can't receive from people. He's climbed to the top of the ladder and he's all alone. And that other youth who is poor and says this in the, in the kind of the images is really actually a pretty complicated image and there's a lot of people that have a different opinions about what's happening. It seems that that poor young youth loved people, valued people, somehow made his way to become a leader in the land of Israel. And when the preacher of Ecclesiastes looked around and said that person who came in with a lot of nothing but loved people, was surrounded. You look around, and there's like people around him. Like he maintained relationships because he didn't feel like his goal was to climb up the ladder. Actually, his humbling and his poverty brought a kind of love and approach that attracted people to him. 
attracted people to him. But he ends with a really sobering line, which says this. There's no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. He's like, and then he died and was forgotten like everybody else. And that's like, you know, Kohelet's way, which is like, I'm going to tell you there's like a worse way and there's a better way, but either way, you die. And uh, so what, right? And that's, that's why Jesus completes the story. The preacher exposes the lie. Jesus is, is bringing a truth that we can stand on. That Jesus humbled himself and saw us in this place where there's so much pain, so much misery, so much wickedness, so much oppression, so much dissatisfaction, so much anxiety. And instead of leaving us alone in that, he came towards us. He emptied himself. He made himself poor. He laid down his life on the cross to atone for our own rebellion, that root cause where he pushed the love of God out and said, we're going to do it by grasping on our own. He reached back for us in his incarnation, his life, and then he atoned for us in his death, his sacrifice for our sins, and he rose again on the third day, giving us hope that all those desires you have for comfort and joy and for life and for meaning can and will be fulfilled when he comes again. And so we as a people are learning and have to learn what it means to rest in the love of Jesus, to rest in his love, to actually consider that he is with us and he loves us in the pain and the sorrow and those empty spaces. We have to rest in the love of Jesus. We have to learn how to follow the way of Jesus, to follow the way of Jesus. We have to learn, like we said, what it means to practice sacrificial generosity. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. That's his way. He's saying there's more joy when you give generously than just like trying to get more and more and more. There's more joy. There's more joy. So we practice sacrificial generosity. We have to learn to balance contribution. We have to learn contentment. Like Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. God's going to take care of you. Trust him. He, He was offering a way of peace, a way free from anxiety of trusting in the Father's care. Pay attention to what's before you today. And then we have to learn to prioritize, like he did, relationships over our productivity. But I'd say the heart of the whole thing is to rest in his love. To rest in his love. That all of our striving, when I thought, like, how do we, Jesus, what do you want to do to free us from this? How do we, how do we be set free? How do we not just see the lie, but be set free from it? It's felt again and again. People got to learn to trust that I love them already. He already loves you. He doesn't need your net worth to grow. He doesn't need to see all your accomplishments and achievements. To learn how to like abide in his love, to enjoy that, to experience that, to trust in that, there's a freedom that begins to come. When you think about his way of life as this emptying of himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross as the path to his greatest joy, then we learn like maybe, maybe the path to joy is to be a kind of person that looks at those around me, says, God, how can I love and care for others? And what you find when you follow that way is it's lighter. There's a freedom, there's a joy, there's a peacefulness. And it's a battle every day. It's a battle against your flesh and the spirit of God working in you. But ultimately, it also requires us to hope in the resurrection. You actually have to believe that if you spent your whole life emptying yourself for others, that there's joy to come. Like if you're going to empty yourself and sacrifice yourself day in and day out, it has to be like it was for Jesus. It has to be for the joy that's set before you. It has to be like the Apostle Paul said, if there's no resurrection, then I lived a really pitiful life. Because Paul worked on emptying his life and being willing to suffer for others his whole life all the way to the point of his execution. But he didn't feel it as an empty life. 
He didn't feel it as a hopeless life because his hope was in Christ who raised the dead. And so his willingness to suffer on behalf of others was rooted in his hope in a future resurrection. Like we need to become people that can rest in the love of Jesus, follow the way of Jesus, and trust in the resurrection. And when we do, we find freedom and joy, purpose and meaning, peace and contentment as we live our lives for the glory of God and for the joy of the other people around us. And so my prayer is that God would do that among us, and I'm going to pray that he'd do that even today. Would you pray with me? And Jesus, we need you even now to set us free. Holy Spirit, would you break the chains of these lies that more and better would lead to happier life? Would you break the chains of those lies? Would you help us to to rest in your love and to follow your way? And hope in the resurrection, become the kind of people that represent you, your love, your generosity, your sacrifice, your contentment, your peace, your care for others, and the way we live and engage in our life, even under the sun while we wait for you to come again and make things new. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to invite the communion servers to make their way forward. We celebrate communion week after week after week as an opportunity to remind ourselves to this sacrament from Jesus, that all the places where we've turned from him and all the ways we've grasped for more and for better and all the ways that we've experienced pain and all the ways our own approach to life has caused pain, all the ways we've felt that isolation and emptiness and all the ways we've potentially created an environment where other people experience isolation and emptiness, all that anxiety, all that fear, all that shame, all that pride that Jesus came into this world and he laid down his life on the cross, shed his blood to bring forgiveness and cleansing and freedom. And so week after week after week, we remind ourselves that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus is the foundation of true life. It's the foundation of the good life. It's to trust in him and to follow his way. And so this is a space for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I hope this is a place we can engage in those claims of Jesus and learn what it would mean to follow him. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to. Uh, We'll have... um, yeah, space uh, throughout the service and then even afterwards uh, if people are looking for prayer for healing in any area of their life where our elder team will be available to pray uh, down this hallway after the service and so that'll be available. Uh, but this is a time for those who have put their faith in Jesus to come and to celebrate his grace towards us. And so I actually want to invite you to stand together and we're going to read this prayer together that we've been reading throughout the series of Ecclesiastes and then we'll celebrate communion together. Would you read this with me? Father in heaven, Free us from our exhausting efforts to seek satisfaction under the sun. Help us to trust in your presence and walk in your ways, even when we are disoriented by the pains and perplexities of life. Increase our passion to live for Jesus, who alone offers lasting joy and unshakable hope. And let our joy and hope in Christ shine like light in the darkness, such that others will be drawn to your saving love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.